So that's Romans chapter 8 on page 1138, and we're starting at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What do you think as you get up in the morning? What do you think as you head into work or school? What do you think when that colleague or class, classmate is getting on your nerves? What do you think? You're heading home, the evening lies ahead. What do you think? Sunday comes round, could go to church. What do you think? Then there are the others around us in church, about them. What do you think? In the Chamber of Secrets, Harry Potter gets himself into a spot of bother. Reporting what had happened to Professor McGonagall, Harry stuttered, I, I didn't think. That, said Professor McGonagall, is obvious. All too often, we too, as believers, don't think as we should. Jesus was once asked, which is the greatest commandment? He replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Your mind. We are to love God with our minds, with the ways that we think. And in Philippians so far, the Apostle Paul has been training us in gospel thinking. If you were here last week, remember 
we were told, think of yourselves as you really are, which is a gospel citizen, a citizen of heaven. So although you live down here on earth, surrounded by others, you don't belong here. Think like that, because you are a citizen of heaven. And that heavenly mindset we saw would show itself in practice as we strive side by side for the sake of the gospel and suffer for Christ. Now, all of this in Philippians so far has really stretched our thinking. I don't mean so much intellectually or academically. Rather, our worldly thinking, our usual ways of thinking, is challenged. We've seen gospel thinking to think another way that will lead us to act differently. And in today's installment in Philippians, Paul really wants to push us in our thinking so that we think all the more in a way that befits who we are, citizens of heaven. Four ways we see here that we are to think. First, think of what you have. Chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So what do we have? Think. Let's see what we are told here. First, we have encouragement in Christ because the gospel has shown us we're in a desperate situation. We deserve judgment. There is nothing we can do. But into that situation, the gospel says, good news. Christ has intervened. Christ has done something. Now, encouraging, that is an overused word in Christian circles. But in Christ, we have such deep encouragement, no condemnation, a secure future. In Christ, there is no better place to be. Be encouraged. Next, comfort from love. Someone in Britain this weekend won £46 million in the Euro Millions lottery. So what now for them? Well, very soon they will have a lot of money. But studies suggest for these large lottery winners that after the initial buzz, did you know they won't be any happier? In fact, quite possibly the opposite. Why is that? Well, if you win the lottery, what happened? Well, a ball machine happened to spew out your numbers. The outcome, if you like, the completely mechanized random process. But nobody cared about you but not so with the gospel. It's not just that we have been rescued, as if some anonymous transaction has taken place somewhere and our future has changed. No, deep down, we long to be loved, and we are. In Christ, there is such love. We look at the cross, we see what was won for us at such great cost, comfort from love. Next, participation in the Spirit. Now, participation here in Philippians is this partnership idea and word. And the Philippians, to which Paul is writing, have experience of this partnership. They had it with one another in Philippi, and they partnered with the Apostle Paul, benefiting from his ministry, and they sought to meet his needs as well. And each of us have this participation or partnership in the gospel. For a start, how did you come to know Christ. Let me ask, was there any people involved? Maybe parents, maybe youth ministry, 
may be friends of yours. That is, these were people working in gospel partnership for which you then were a beneficiary. And then since then, as Christians, many of us will have experienced the joy of working together with others in gospel partnership, all God-given by the Spirit. We have participation in the Spirit. And then affection and sympathy. Our translators struggle to put this phrase into English, and maybe affection and sympathy doesn't quite cut it. What Paul is trying to express is depth and intensity of feeling. So think again of that parable of the prodigal son, the younger son treating his father so badly. And yet then, when the father saw him far off, the father felt this deep affection and sympathy, such compassion, and ran towards his wayward son. Well, that's us in Christ. We are the recipients of this deep and tender mercy and compassion of God, a love beyond compare, this love for which we were made, this love that will hold us tight forever, no separation, such affection and sympathy. Notice how Paul began the verse. He says, if there is. He's not expressing any doubt about these things at all. Rather, it's his way to get us thinking about what we have in the gospel, in Christ. He says, if we have, because we certainly do have these things, don't we? Is what he wants to say. He knows we forget so quickly. We live down here on earth and all that's around us, if you like, infects us. We become concerned, even obsessed, for the worldly things we have or might want or might lose and it overwhelms us. Well, Paul is saying, come back to your senses. If you have these things, he's not saying you're playing less pretend. This is how it really is. The gospel tells you, you have each of these things. We have so much more, so much better than what this world can give. Maybe some here this afternoon have really got no sense of verse one, of what Paul has been talking about which may show you've never actually experienced these things. You haven't understood what Jesus has done, accepted the offer that he makes. Well, if that's you, think. Take a closer look at the claims of the gospel. So first, think of what you have. But Paul is giving us no mere reminder here. The point is, if verse one is true, which it is, then there are practical implications that follow. Paul wants to help us to see those. In particular, next, we need to think like Paul. Think like Paul, which means for a start, pursue joy. So in the light of all the Philippians have in Christ, Paul says, beginning of verse two, complete my joy. Now, isn't that astonishing? Remember again from where Paul is writing, that grim prison cell. As we've seen, even when other believers were conspiring against him, still they couldn't remove his joy, especially if he heard that Christ was being proclaimed. And we've heard, haven't we, how Paul has said there's only one reason really he wants to stay alive, that is not yet go to be with Christ right away. And that one reason is to work for the Philippians' joy and progress in the faith. 
amazing. You'd have thought for Paul, what would be the one thing he might want? Comfort, maybe, or freedom. His name cleared, but no. No doubt he wouldn't mind those things, but his priority, his longing. Here, complete my joy for those faraway Philippians to think and act rightly. That would complete his joy. So for Paul, joy is what really matters. And he's talking about true, lasting, satisfying joy. Not just in the future, but in the here and now. It's for Philippians and for him. That's what he is after. And that's what he wants his hearers, for us to want as well. So how then can we, like Paul, pursue joy? And it turns out not in the ways the world will tell us. Rather, he's about to explain. Put this into practice as you pursue joy. So what are we to do? Well, Paul tells those Philippians and us, we must think the same. Look how verse 2 continues. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So again, he lists some qualities. Notice how they start and end in the same place. One mind, the same mind as Paul, which would then lead, of course, to having the same mind as one another. So if our question is, where does joy come from? Notice for a start, it's not about me achieving my own personal ambitions. No, joy will come in relationship with others and with others with whom we think the same. Now, this language of thinking the same, what does the world think of everyone thinking the same? Well, sometimes the world will perceive that very negatively, as if Paul is encouraging some sort of groupthink. But of course, ironically, there are so many ways in our world today that if we dare to think anything other than the world's prevailing view, you will be ruthlessly attacked and cancelled. So what does Paul mean by having this same mind? Well, of course, he must mean to think the same about the truth, gospel truth. At the start of yesterday's coronation service, the archbishop declared Christ is risen. To which the whole congregation responded, he is risen indeed. I wonder if I was the only one to wonder, did everyone there really think that? I don't know. But they should do, because it's true. Jesus did rise from the dead. And of course, one day, everyone will think that as they bow the knee before him. But for us believers, we believe the same now because we believe the gospel and its truths. But that's not all Paul means by same mind. He doesn't simply mean we all mentally assent, if you like, to the same truth, even gospel truth. You might say what he's after is the same mindset. That is, in the light of the truths of the gospel, we need to be of one mind of the response that is needed, which is what? Well, let's start again in verse 2. In between speaking of the same or one mind, Paul tells us to have the same love being in full accord. Notice again, relationships with others and the language of love. So he's already told us, verse 1, the gospel reveals to us God's love. And now we are to have that sort of love towards one another. We are to work at being in full accord with each other. But again, you could ask, well, what does that, how does that work out in practice? Well, Paul wants to help us. So think of what you have. Think like Paul. 
Next, think of the interests of others. The West End production of Shirley Valentine has extended its run. It is proving popular. It's a show all about the waste of an unused life. And it has evidently struck a chord. Because don't we? We want our lives to be used, useful, to matter for something. But the question is, who do we want our lives to be about? Verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So again, now the focus, how do we then relate to others, if it's with others that we pursue joy? Well, Paul says, count others as more significant than ourselves, which by nature we obviously don't do, because what matters is us. And doesn't this become obvious so often? What happens when we feel snubbed or patronized or sidelined, even the most trivial of ways? We take offense. We complain to somebody. We speak ill of others. And when that happens in church, well, it's disastrous. Any unity we might have had evaporates. Why do we do that? Well, look how verse 3 begins. It assumes that we act from rivalry and conceit. The boxer Muhammad Ali once said, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. Or then Donald Trump. Show me someone without an ego and I'll show you a loser. Well, we like to suppose, I mean, we would never think anything like that of ourselves. We don't suppose that's me. But it was C.S. Lewis who once put it like this, if you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. But then the gospel shows us this, what we are really like. It shows us how great we've decided we are. Not only compared to others, we essentially think we are better than God. (laughs) Can you believe it that we know better than him? It's deeply uncomfortable. The gospel continually then exposes our pride. And so we then hear this. We must pursue humility in practice. So what does that look like? Verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So someone might read that verse and says, yes, okay, we're meant to think of others. No one would disagree with that. That, of course, is the topic of Every school assembly, the HR missive, think of others. But when it actually then comes to that sort of service, what drives what that might look like for us? I guess all too often it's, well, what fits with my schedule? What wouldn't actually take too much effort or be too costly? I might even think, well, how fun might it be to serve others? Even I might get to do this humble service in the limelight. Paul wants us to think. Of course, he's not just urging this generalized platitude, think of others. Instead, verse 4, look to the interests of others. That is, stop thinking about yourself. Look to other people and ask, what are their interests? What do they need? How could I help? And as we think like that, no doubt we can come up with all sorts of practical applications in daily life and especially in the life of the church among 
believers. But still, we need to push on, if you like, to think harder. So as we often ask as we read the Bible, why is Paul saying these things at this point in his letter to the Philippians? Or to put it another way, what would Paul have us understand here by the interests of others? And of course, to begin to answer that, we've seen the Apostle Paul over these last few weeks. His example, his passion, his joy, it's shone through his determination for gospel advance, for Christ to be proclaimed, for the progress and joy of others in the faith. And remember why that is. Paul has a future day in mind on which he is focused. He called it the day of Christ. The day when every person who's ever lived will stand before the living and glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul thinks about that day. And like Paul, so are we. And then to think about others and their interests in the light of that day. And do you remember, if you hear last week, Paul actually told us very explicitly about that day last week. I wonder if we were listening. I wonder if we went home and just appreciated the weight of what he had just told us. Look back to verse 28. He told us not to be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So here's what the future holds. Destruction. That is the destiny of every person outside of Christ. Those of us studying Matthew here on Tuesday evenings in our small group, small groups just this week heard Jesus say this about Judas. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. But wonderfully, although that is what we too deserve, that need not be our future. Because the gospel tells us there is salvation in Christ. And again, Matthew's gospel, as Jesus is approaching his death, he is looking forward to a heavenly banquet when one day, he says, he will drink again of the fruit of the vine with his disciples and all his people in his father's kingdom. So after verse 28, what do we think Paul means here in verse 4 by the interests of others? What are their best interests, their gospel interests? So again, we need to keep thinking. This afternoon's verses are clearly about unity in the church, how we relate to and treat one another. And that is important in all sorts of ways. But why is Paul writing about it here? What's the aim in saying it now? Well, again, it follows from last week, verse 27. He says we are to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. So disunity in the church, what is the problem with that? Well, it's not really enjoyable for anyone. But of course, there's more to it. If we are spending our time squabbling or worse with other Christians, have a think, what is not happening? Well, let's suppose you're in church. There's no open disagreement at all. It's rather a polite couple of hours together on a Sunday afternoon. Is that okay? Or again, what is not happening? Or even if a church is a really happy place, Christians have a great time. They enjoy each other's company. 
But again, if that's all that it is, it's a problem. Oh, yet it's a convivial social club. But the thinking needs to change. Think gospel. Think of what we have in Christ. Think of what are the best interests of others. How will we together meet those best interests of others only if we are striving side by side together for the faith of the gospel? So if there are areas where we struggle with verses 1 to 4 with fellow believers, well, work really hard at them. So these things no longer divide us. So that then we, with others, in the places God has put us, can together strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, for the sake of the best interests of others. And so finally, and briefly, think like Christ. The last few weeks, I think, what Paul has had to say to us has been very challenging through Philippians. If you haven't felt that, maybe you haven't been paying attention. And this week, I think, has given us more to, well, think about. Why not over the road at Food at Fives? Why not sit down and ask one another, what are you thinking? We could discuss, couldn't we, the ways in which if we really did think in these ways, these four ways, life in practice would be very different. But maybe even as I say that, you're beginning to feel this. Well, but can we really do this? Can we think like this? Can we live like this in practice? Because that would mean change, and I'm not sure I can do that. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Well, we've already looked at Christ this afternoon in various ways. But it seems Paul knows that if we've been listening to him up to this point, we need to see him more. We've seen, we can maybe agree that what we've heard this afternoon, I can see how that makes sense. But we need to see it in and from Christ himself. Did you hear King Charles' first words at the coronation yesterday? A child welcomed him in the name of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And in response, Charles said, in his name and after his example, I come not to be served, but to serve. Well, again, if that really is what the King of the United Kingdom thinks, that is great news for us as the citizens of this nation. But of course, we know for sure that our ultimate King, the King of Kings, did truly come not to be served, but to serve. And he did it for the sake of others' salvation. What Christ did for us in love is astounding. And so now Paul wants us to see it again. Because only then, ultimately, is there any hope for us to follow in his footsteps as we keep our eyes on him. So if we are to think, as we've heard this afternoon, to give ourselves to the interests of others for their gospel interests, we must fix our gaze on Christ. And because Paul knows we need it, Next week, if you like, in Philippians, he's going to show us Christ again. So next week, we will give ourselves to looking on Christ together. I'll lead us in a closing prayer. So, our Father, we do praise you once again for this love, 
for us revealed in the gospel. Thank you for all that is now ours in Christ forever. And so in response, would we think in the ways we've seen this afternoon, would we be of the same mind? And so do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others better than ourselves and look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Would we therefore all the more strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, for your glory. Amen. Thanks, Aaron. Let's start with one on this passage today. Um, so something in the integrity of the text. How is, in, in verse one, how is participation in the spirit uh, interpreted as partnership in the gospel? Yes, I'm cheating in that <laughs> I can read the Greek. And so, therefore, in chapter one and here, there's the word partnership and the root of that is the same as the word. Remember, we had it in chapter one. I didn't tell you again. That's what I was doing. So that's why I made that tight connection. You can kind of see the idea in the language, but um, in Philippians, it is a bit tighter. He is saying you experience this partnership, participation, and it's not just Christians working alongside each other, which you found maybe a great encouragement or help. That was God's plan. By his spirit, he worked things out to put Christians amongst you in your midst that you would work with, that would share the gospel with you, and then you would share with them, work with them to share with others. It's a really challenging thought, and I, th- I hope some of us can speak something of this, that gospel ministry is very challenging, actually. It's quite hard in whatever way you do it. But then you look back and you realize there was a real joy in that, and that was God-given. God, ironically, that idea of my life being useful, well, God gave me something to do with others that was profoundly and eternally useful. And so even though in earthly terms it may have been difficult and painful, yet knowing that this was being done in the spirit for the Lord brought a deeper joy. And another in the text of today. Um, In verse 5, do we have this mind already or is it only a potential thing now that we're Christians? Um, Well, you can read the sentence, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And this is a dynamic, if you like, that is there in so much of the Christian life. In one sense, we have it all. We do have a new mind. We have lots of other things. And yet we are to live out and to be who we are, which is a great encouragement, really. So despite all these challenges in Philippians, it's not obviously trying to earn something, not really trying to get something we don't already have. Paul is saying, in Christ Jesus, remember that phrase at the beginning, you have been given all these things. And in one very real sense, they are yours already. But now, with God's help, you are seeking to avail yourself of them and enjoy them and put them into practice all the more. So it is reassuring in the end. I mean, I have felt, preaching this, I'm just not sure I can think like Paul and be like him. I'm not sure I can make it. To which Paul's answer would be, in a sense, you have these things in Christ. So don't worry about not having them or never getting them. You have them in Christ. But now own them and experience them and enjoy them and strive for them. So it's a dynamic that does encourage us in the midst of the challenges. So we have this mind, so therefore work towards it. Uh, So one on application, you might not want to answer this one, but um, what might it look like for us to think like Christ in our day-to-day lives um, as some examples to help us think of more? Well, Matthew says I'm reticent only because 
not to say we would never give examples, but I would say that I did say at the end, go over and, and, and chat about it. So, I mean, I might, I could give some ideas, but the principles I think are pretty clear, almost all too clear, but it does help to talk with others. So do chat about these things and not necessarily that what someone else does is exactly what you would do, but that might spark your thinking and help you to realize in practice what these principles mean. So I'm glad the question was asked. I think I am going to duck it and say, well, you can talk to me personally afterwards, but I'm not going to give ideas up here because it would be taken as the official line. But do go and chat with others and spark each other, help each other, challenge each other, what that might look like. And your example might be a great spur to somebody else, even if the outbox is slightly different. Okay, so um, one on more Philippians more widely. Um, how is the context of the Philippian church helping us in our application were they lacking a Christ-like mindset and having fallouts, or are they on track but could embrace the mindset more? How, how are they doing, and how does that fit? I mean, the best way to answer that is to read the letter, which obviously we are doing. We just got started. So I've done the first four in the series. I didn't try at the beginning to give you my accurate, not that it would have been, in a summary of exactly what the flipping situation is. We've sort of been finding out as we go through we did learn from Acts a little bit about what happened in Philippi, so we can know that the readers have got some experience of that. But as we've read through the letter, we've seen the tone, that it's a lot of joy. I think Paul is genuinely thrilled. Well, he's thanking God for them, so it's a good relationship. He also wouldn't thank God for what wasn't there, so it sounds like they are genuinely in partnership. But like lots of us, they need encouragement and a challenge as well. So, on this particular question of are they being united, are they striving side by side, I think the answer would be yes, because he's thanking them for their partnership, he has seen it in them, but maybe that is an area where they need a bit of help. So you get to chapter four, and then you discover there are a couple of ladies who are struggling to agree in the Lord, and Paul's outbox again is, please sort that out, because it's hindering your striving side by side. So it seems like there are questions there. They're not gospel fundamentals, but we begin to see more as we go through why he's given us what he's given us so far. Although it doesn't matter that we haven't yet got to chapter four, because what he has told us here are clearly gospel principles for all gospel people. They depend supremely on that. And obviously, we are learning about his situation, and we are meant to learn and be encouraged and challenged by the fact that he is in prison. One big thing people try and work out before they teach Philippians is where is Paul in prison? Because he was in prison quite a lot. And lots of people can't be sure. I've got a hunch. But sometimes people say, I need to know where he was. Well, maybe or maybe not. Maybe that we know what a prison in the first century was like and how grim it was. And so just when he speaks of his chains and his lack of freedom, we know enough about what that means without necessarily having to work out exactly where this is on his travels. So how can I pray for someone and look to the interests of others if I don't know about their interests on a more practical level? If I don't know about, their, don't interests. Know about their interests? Yeah. Well, Paul's challenging, isn't he, to get us thinking that obviously it's a very good principle that... Um, we love our neighbor by serving their needs and interests. But I think if we didn't have that chapter break and we were thinking through, does he tell me more about the interests? I do know what they are. So in other words, they are gospel interests. So therefore, if they are within the church, 
It is for their progress and joy in the faith. Now, this is not to say you don't do all sort of practical things and meet other pressing needs, of course, if that's an interest. But Paul wants us to think of others, but their gospel interests are what he has modeled, which is for believers, their progress and joy in the faith, and for unbelievers that Christ is proclaimed to them. And so therefore, we'll work with other believers, both for the sake of other believers, to be helped in their Christian lives, to be shared the gospel with them, but then also with unbelievers to think, how do I work together so that in every way, whether from false motives or true, but from true motives, Christ is proclaimed. So I think those are the headlines. Worth saying sometimes on this question, when people hear someone reflect Paul's focus on sharing the gospel, they sometimes even say it's unloving, as if Paul didn't care about other things. It's obvious from the rest of the New Testament, Paul cared about the whole person, if you want to put it that way, and everything. But it's actually unloving not to have a focus on someone's greatest need. That is their interest. So you want someone to care for you for your greatest need. And so Paul is trying to help us to clarify our thinking on that, to realize the interests, so the interests of others are to be saved from destruction and to live as Christ and to die as gain. And so to the extent that we can serve them in that, that's what we will do and therefore pray. And then, I mean, just someone said pray. That, of course, is a primary way we work towards it. Please don't think this is simply saying, I've got to go and give a gospel outline to a friend. Now, it might mean that, of course. But again, we'll read through Philippians, and he has a focus on prayer. He prayed from the very beginning. So again, we might pray for these things consistently, regularly, have a list of those we pray with regularly. When we meet with others, it'll be one thing that we regularly pray for, outreach for others and those whom we know and whatever maybe institution you're involved with, whether a school or a workplace or something else. With other believers there, you will pray for that institution along these lines of the best interests of others. One last question. Um, Thinking of believers, um, is Paul only talking about kind of gospel encouragement um, or is he talking about kind of counting each other ahead of ourselves in practical ways, sharing life with one another, finances, that sort of thing? So I've begun to answer that question. So of course he is thinking about other things but he would have a focus to it, a gospel priority. There's you know, no other way to think about it. We've seen it in prison. He had lots of other needs for himself, and it would not have been wrong. And I think Paul knows he, we're thinking along these lines. So towards the end of the letter, he talks about being in need and in plenty. And in one sense, in the earthly terms, those aren't the things that drive him because of the gospel and uh, knowing Christ. So Of course, if anyone read this and thought, okay, so I don't need to practically care for others, that would be perverse to think that. And yet, this would be a challenge more in the direction of, well, Paul would say, think. If verse 28 is true, there's a day of Christ coming on which there will be salvation and judgment. And it's God that does the rescuing, but he does it through the means of the gospel and the reason I have not yet gone to be with Christ, which would be better by far, is to remain here for the sake of others. Well, what am I going to do? I mean, John Piper puts it this way because he's often challenged on this. He says, of course, as believers, we care about all suffering 
and especially eternal suffering. Thank you, Aaron.